Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. Today, we're going to talk about a woman who has just made her 100th birthday, um, an achievement in and of itself. But more importantly, she's a woman who all her life broke molds, helped other people benefit from her talents and skills, and instilled much of um, what she understood as a way to live to her son and grandson, Sidney Torres III and Sidney Torres IV. Um, herein to be identified as three and four, just for brevity in the interview. Um, she was um, a longtime clerk of court in St. Bernard Parish, which is one of the reasons why she knew so many people and so many people were a part of her life, both in her work, but um, in her, her, her world in general. Um, but let's set the stage for those who are not familiar with her. Everybody in St. Bernard Parish knows who Lena Torres is, but not everybody in my audience, which is a very diverse and broad audience from around the city uh, knows about her. So um, Sydney Three, would you like to start with um, just a little bit of a portrait of the woman? Yeah, well, first of all, Jean, uh, mom's birthday was uh, this past Friday. Uh, January 29th, she made 100 years old. And uh, she was born in St. Bernard, lived here all of her life. Uh, matter of fact, she was born in a small farmhouse uh, on what is known as Dockville Farm. And uh, she, uh, she went on to become clerk of court in St. Bernard in later life, served there until age, uh, I think the last election, she was 91 years old. She had actually run for reelection. And uh, so she's been around for a long time down here. She's been a tremendous influence on the people and on St. Bernard in general, and certainly on me and my family and my son, Sydney. So um, she starts on a farm. Um, so fill in that gap between <clears throat> farm, and I assume if you live on a farm, you work on a farm. I've never actually lived on a farm, but I have um, spent summers with my family in New Jersey on farms, um, putting chickens up to roost and chasing sheep down the street and things like that. So I know that if you live on a farm, you're a part of it. Um, how did you go from living on a farm to being clerk of court? Well, uh, on the farm, five brothers, mom and dad, and as you said, everybody worked on the farm. Uh, in her younger years, uh, she kept books for Dr. Uh, Miro, who owned the Dockville Farm, and he encouraged her to go to Sule. And so she went there, received a degree in business at Sule College, and uh, uh, got her first job in the clerk's office at uh, age 18. And uh, she was working in the clerk's office. Uh, later on, my uh, father became clerk of court. She became chief deputy clerk of court. And when my father passed away in 1988, uh, she was elected without opposition to serve as clerk in St. Bernard Parish. Um, and uh, so she, uh, she got a start. She always tells a story that uh, it was Dr. Miro who, uh, who encouraged her to go to Sule College. 
uh, she was doing a great job with his books. He used to always try to catch her in some sort of an era. And we have copies of some of the invoices and they would measure the day's take all the way down to the penny. And so apparently saw something in her that he encouraged her. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but uh, she got involved in politics at an early age, age 21. She served as the first female poll commissioner in St. Bernard Parish, may have been one of the first in the state. And you got to remember when she was born in 1922, women had just earned the right to vote two years earlier. So she was a trailblazer and she got out there. And in those days of politics in St. Bernard Parish, uh, not only did you have to watch the vote during the day, but at the end of the day, they had ballot boxes in those days. And you had to make sure they would count the votes out of the appropriate ballot box. There were always stories about ballot boxes floating in the bayous after elections. Uh, but she, she got I in there. I heard that about recently. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but uh, so she was around in St. Bernard. And as you know, we have, uh, we have quite a history here in St. Bernard. A lot of people with deep roots. Her family was Italian. My father's family were traced back to the Los Isleños. And they were an important part of the parish down here and had a lot of influence. And a lot of people down here, certainly myself and my son and the family love her. But uh, she was amazed at her 100th birthday saying, wow, all of these people are calling. Uh, she received a, a birthday card from the archbishop. And then on her birthday, he called to make sure that she had received it. And yep. she woke up the next morning. And uh, there's a big photograph of her on the first page. So she's always been very modest and very humble. And as a matter of fact, her, uh, you know, her demeanor and uh, her humbleness has always understated uh, her strength because she certainly is a strong lady. So, so that's one of them. Um, you know, I, I have to say that um, I've never spent a tremendous amount of time with her. I've only met her in these later years, but I don't think we've ever done an event at the crevasse that she wasn't there and being a part of it. So she continues to be really active and a part of things, which I think is a healthy thing to do as you get older. But I think that what always impressed me about her was the fact that she did break all these molds at such an early phase in, in, in history. And so as a woman, I'm not exactly a feminist because I was brought up by folks who didn't try to tell me I could do less than anybody else. So it was never, I never had the idea that I had to be told it's okay to do things as a woman. I just did them. But she really set that model and, and the, your story about the support from uh, Mr. Miro um, is very important because in almost all the stories that I've done about people on these shows now I've been, I've done, I don't know, over six, 7,000 interviews. There's always somebody in your past who was important in mentoring. And in the case of both of you, um, that was her. And so Sydney, the Sydney Four, if you wouldn't mind, um, tell me how that model of who she was, her character and how she interrelated with people affected the way you look on the world. Thank you. Yes, she was she was a great example. Um, you know, she was always consistent with um, her beliefs. Um, you know, she would go to church on Sundays. I know later on as her brothers got sick that she would take care of them and she couldn't go as much. But um, she she was a big believer in, in faith and, and having faith. And she was a peacemaker, you know, when her family would have issues. She was always her brothers and sisters. Um, she was always the one trying to put it put it back together. And um, and she was a great example um, of someone who works hard. I think a lot of my um, 
ways of how I run my businesses today, watching her sit in the courthouse. And, you know, I mean, she knew when somebody would walk in, she knew their name. She knew if they were asking for a file, what, what, what shelf it was on. Um, you know, she, and, and if she didn't, even, even knowing the shelf it was on, she'd know what was in the file uh, on a lot of those files that people would come in and ask for. And so, you know, she led by example, I would say. And, and, and that was something that she wouldn't talk about it. She'd do it. Um, and, and I remember I'd go over there all upset or mad about something and, and she would calmly sit there with me for hours and just talk and have a glass of tea or uh, coffee or, you know, and, and, um, and she was very calm and she always would say, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. And it always did. It always did work out. And she had a way about her that was very calming. And still to this day, she does. Um, she, um, she's a great example and a great grandmother. And, uh, and even in my business career at times, she would call me and tell me about my grandfather and say, you don't, you got to be careful. You know, you don't want to grow too fast and you got to watch out and be, all the things but that there was a business consultant too. She, she really was. She really was. Cause she, she, she talked from experience, not from opinion. Um, and I guess it was her opinion from experience, but it wasn't like selfish. And so she was, she really wanted to help. And, um, and so she was just been really good. And, and, and her brothers and sisters, I mean, that was a perfect example of someone that would give her themselves. I mean, her older brother never was married and his name was Tony. My little brother was named after, uh, my uncle Tony. And, um, she would, um, she would make tea every night after she got off of work, she would go in and, and make tea for him and, and crackers. And, and he was, he was a guy that he had a big heart, but he was the type of uncle that you thought was real grumpy because he would give me my, give me my tea, Lena, give me my tea, you know, and not please not thank you. And one day I asked her, I said, he doesn't, when he gets like that, he doesn't make you upset. She goes, no, I love him. He's my, he's my oldest brother. And, uh, <laughs> And so she would just, you know, she didn't mind that he talked like that. Most people would be like, here's you throw your tea at you. you know. But yeah. every day she would do that and she would make the tea and she would she would take care of him. And, and she was selfless. I mean, she would do things for her family that uh, most people should do today. And I think would help families even more. But um, but yeah. And even with work, I mean, to the last minute, she wanted to run again. And, and I was kind of like ah, I, back and forth. I didn't really kind of thought that. <laughs> wasn't a good idea but you know she was so headstrong that it's kind of like okay let's let's go ahead and do it because you know she was always there for for us and one more thing I want to say is that you know I would go to her and talk to her about things and and she she had a way of processing and then the either that evening or the next day she would call and say come come see me come see me and and she'd want to help out get the deal done or something like you know she was that type of person she wanted to try to help in every way she could but um, this, so there was two things that re really impressed me when I read uh, the story about her that was in The Advocate and the story about the fact that she would sit with her workers, not in a separate office. That right. really struck me as something that that takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that, um, get your work done and feel uh, connected to the people that you work with in a in a not in a hierarchical way, but in a team-like way. But the other thing that really impressed me about her again is that um, it seems like she was pretty fearless. If, if she wanted to do something, she was just plain gonna do it. And that's something that clearly both of you inherited from her because um, I mean, both of you come from a certain place in your business 
and then move the boundary, move the boundary, move the boundary, move the boundary. So I do want to talk about that for a minute. Sydney uh, three, if you might, um, you know, you started out as a lawyer, but right now you're running one of the biggest um, film studios in the state. Um, you have an art venue that um, I've had the uh, good fortune of working with you on. And um, good, goodness only knows what's next. I know you do a lot of real estate and you're, and you're looking to expand uh, what you have on your art holdings. And Sydney three, um, four, we'll get to you in a second about um, um, have you pushed your boundaries. But Sydney, where'd you get the nerve other than from Lena in a way to go ahead and do something you've never done before? Take those old shopping centers and turn them into a film studio. Well, she led by example and I guess uh, you know, I don't know that she thought about things in terms of this. Uh, if she wanted to hold up a sleeve and get it. And uh, I think it goes back to, to the form life. You know, uh, in those days, uh, you would uh, sow the seeds, you would tend to the crop, and you'd pray and you'd work hard. And if everything turned out, it, it was good. And uh, we never sat around thinking or worrying about uh, should we do something, shouldn't we do it. If it seemed like the right thing, we felt that uh, we wanted to do it. We got in there and did it. Uh, she sat outside in the office because how better could you set an example for your workers and for them to see you working just like they did. And uh, of course, gave her the opportunity to greet people as they came into the office and to handle issues that they had uh, firsthand. She would be handing off before they got to her desk. Uh, she's saying hello. They're saying, oh, I'm here to get this record. She had already assigned it to somebody to get it done. So I guess what we learned from her, and I always said, I use the Latin phrase, Sue Jennifer, that she's a one of a kind. And I know she's my mother, and I, but she absolutely is one of a kind. I mean, her strength, her devotion to whatever she ended up doing, uh, to her family, to her friends, treated everybody equally. She had a lot of love for art. And, uh, you know, she touched so many people. Until this day, there are people who call her looking for things. A uh, uh, quick story, uh, a few weeks ago, somebody called her and said uh, they were interested in researching something to do with a roadway down here in St. Bernard. And she got uh, stumped on the answer and she's scratching her head. She says, you know, I have a friend who's 102. I'm going to call him and see if he can <laughs> But there wasn't anything <laughs> you would ever ask her to do that she didn't give it her best. And matter of fact, uh, one of her sayings was when they were asking her about, well, you received this award and that award. She says, you know, what was important to me is the number of people I helped during my time in public office. And uh, she summed it up saying, but I always tried to do my best. Sydney Four. How did she shape you? Again, you, I, I just saw that characteristic modesty that you talked about with her come from uh, Sydney three, because uh, of course I wanted him to talk about the film studio and he, he, he didn't want to, um, you know, sing his own praises, but um, uh, both of you again have ventured forth. So let's see, you've been through, you've, you developed the hauling business. I don't know exactly what you want to call it, uh, security business, real estate. Um, I love what you've done with the Circle Foods. That was a, a definitely a, a passion for helping that neighborhood and, and, and looking at neighborhoods in general. So um, that's probably just skimming the surface. Oh, the television show, how could I forget that? And, um, and quite frankly, my very first exposure to you was the, an ad that you did um, early on with Lenny Kravitz. 
And I thought that was so brilliant to use somebody who had that kind of personality um, in, in, and uh, place in the world in an ad. And I said, who did that? How did that happen? And there you go. It's you. So tell me about how you've um, channeled that spirit of hers to kind of, whether you knew how to do it before or not, just go do it as, as, as Sydney three was just saying. Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, showing, leading by example. I mean, the fact that she would sit in the front room and, you know, she would do what she would ask her coworkers to do. Like she was always the one, the first to do it. So people would get angry with her and get upset with her, but uh, at times because she would, she would kind of get frustrated and she would, I, don't, I didn't, wouldn't say it would have fuss, but she'd raise her voice. I want this, I want, get this, we need to get this. The guy's been waiting for 10 minutes. Get it done. Get it done. But what I witnessed is the, the coworkers had been there for so long with her that they knew that it was coming from the right place. It wasn't a selfish place. And I think that like in my business and the way that I do things with my my work is is that I lead by example. I'm in the you know, I'm, I'll get on the back of the truck or I'll be at the job in the morning with them and I'll work with them through cleaning it up and getting ready to open from the beginning to the end. And I think that those traits are something. But, you know, from it was my great grandparents, too, and my uncles and my great uncles and my dad, too. They all worked really hard and they they were very consistent with with going to work and being an example um, to carrying the torch instead of, you know, having somebody else do it and telling them what to do and um, and always trying to figure out ways that you can help people along the way while doing it. Right. Because when you create, for example, like Circle Food Store, opening it up is not it wasn't it's not a big money maker, um, but it's a historical landmark that a lot of people used to work at and they lost their jobs and they needed jobs. And so all those people that worked there for years and years and years, we were able to rehire them as cash registers and butchers and things like that. So, you know, it, it you got to do a little bit of both. It's kind of like my dad with the film industry in St. Bernard, you know, St. Bernard was hit hard after the storm. So it's great. He's creating all these jobs. I'll speak for him on that since he didn't want to, <laughs> but creating jobs for other people down there and, and, and opportunity. And I think that's, that, that was my grandmother. She served with, um, with her heart and, and not so much about the money and not at all about the money really from the heart and helping the community and, and trying to, to be of service. And I think that's, that really showed in every way by her friends and the outpour of, of people calling her the archbishop and even people today. I mean, when I introduce myself a lot, my, nine times out of 10, they have a story about my grandmother, either whether it's a judge or it's a, you know, a, a police or just a common, common folk, you know, they just, they have experience with her through work, through the bakery, um, through her life. And so, um, so all those things I think have helped me along the way of, um, being successful and doing this and, and being able to, uh, carry out the same kind of, uh, work ethic. You know, I can't resist, um, <clears throat> pivoting here for a minute, uh, and, and dealing with the issue of pivoting during COVID. So, um, you know, we, we are really known in Louisiana and, and in this metro area, for our quote resilience, we're always resilient. Here we are with the pandemic, it's killed our core industry. And um, what happens, people are decorating their homes as uh, uh, house floats and they're doing floats in the oaks. I mean, we just, we come out of things and I'll never forget after Katrina, uh, one of the things that reassured me we were gonna be okay was the first parade in for Halloween in the French Quarter, uh, which said to me, oh my God, we're gonna be okay, we're gonna make it. Um, but now um, I, th I feel like we're at a very tentative moment. 
where we are still seeing people wanting to be here and attracted to our culture, but also we have been losing some folks who have lost their jobs. Who, and, and since we are so dependent on hospitality industry that, that it's, it's a little bit of a existential threat, I think, to the city. And then I read these stories about people from San Francisco uh, leaving because of the high prices there and where are they going? And I hear Houston and I hear Miami and I hear Chicago and I'm not hearing New Orleans. So I'm kind of concerned about how we are pushing through to the future. Obviously the film studio, Sydney, is, is, is critical. I know that you're building housing Sydney um, Four, which is um, one of the things that we all talk about here, the need for more um, affordable and mid-range housing. So uh, tell me your perspective and what's keeping you going and pivoting um, and, and dealing with the future. Sydney Three, you want to start? Yeah, um, well, resilience and creativity. That's what we're known for down here in New Orleans, Gene, as you said. And uh, uh, I see opportunity uh, coming out of this. Uh, because of the, uh, the, the resiliency of the people down here in the New Orleans area, and also because creative minds like being down here, and we had discussed this recently, Gene, I see the opportunity for growth after COVID because this is gonna be a place in just using the, uh, the film industry, there's a pent up need for content and there's a lot of interest in the people we've been dealing with over the last seven years for being here. And uh, just in that industry, uh, we see an opportunity to anchor what is a multi-billion dollar business down here in a place that is an extremely desirable uh, venue, not only just for people who are creating television programs and movies, but also for creative people who want to be down here. And, uh, and, and as you do more of that, it goes hand in hand, by the way, with the tour industry and people wanting to come back down here because as people see things on the video or big screen, 10% uh, of all the tourists in New Orleans say that they're here because of something they've seen on video. And uh, so th that's a big deal. When you take uh, tourism in New Orleans and you can say they're getting a 10% response from advertising that they don't have to pay for, that's actually getting jobs, that's an extremely big deal. And, uh, and, and then also they're talking about now as we get out of COVID, I heard someone equate this to it's going to be like the 20s. Interestingly, that's when my mother was born. Roaring, <laughs> roaring 20s. People are going to want to come back. They're going to want entertainment. They're going to want to uh, go to restaurants. And what's the best place in the world to do that? New Orleans. So I see a huge opportunity here of all of us getting together. Uh, I feel no negativity of it at all from where I sit. And I think we're going to come out of this uh, better and stronger. Sydney Four. Well, you know, I having the garbage contract for St. Bernard Parish and other areas and municipalities throughout the New Orleans metro area, I see firsthand, you know, the activity going on in St. Bernard Parish. I mean, we we deliver between 35 to, to 50 cans a month on average to new homes being built and new people moving in uh, homes. Oh, and so. So, so that's a, I mean, when you look at that compared to like Kenner, the city of Kenner, there, there's people moving and we have some, but the growth in St. Bernard is just unbelievable. And, um, and so, you know, we, we witness that, we see that from that side. Um, I, I do agree with my father in that, you know, that, that just like Katrina, there's always opportunity when, when you have issues like, like with Katrina and, and COVID and, and big, um, big shakeups in the world like that, uh, that create, uh, that create opportunity. And, and so that's why I'm 
going more into affordable housing um, because there's a there's a huge need for it. Um, there's a lot there's a lot of funding available for that through federal and state and local. Um, and so just, you know, retooling some of the ways that you do business and, and being able to, to change course when needed uh, is is very important. And 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 building new relationships with individuals who maybe need credit that have great ideas and being able to, to work with them and, and like an incubator type way of, of helping them launch their uh, affordable housing fourplex or double or whatever they're trying to do um, to create more opportunity for them. And, and so I'm enjoying doing that as that's not really a big moneymaker, but you're, you're giving other people opportunity and you're working with them. But on the other side of, of affordable housing of what I'm doing there on Tulane and Carrollton um, and also in mid city on, on Bayou St. John, I think that, you know, it's, 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 it's also being careful too uh, because, you know, we, we really have to watch this, the hospitality industry. I talked to Joe Yeager the other day. Um, he's one of the largest privately owned, you know, he owns, Owns the largest privately owned uh, resort uh, portfolio, uh, probably in the city and state, um, privately owned. And, um, you know, he was telling me that he's projecting that uh, he doesn't see anything really getting back to normal as far as the hotels uh, towards the end of this year, beginning of next year. And when he says normal, it's not going to be like it was before. Um, it's going to be so it's but he's changing the way he's doing it. He's doing um, the Airbnb and some of these hotels and he's doing the longer term stays, um, you know, where people come in and, and they stay for a week at a lower rate but they have a larger unit. Um, so everybody, I think the point I'm trying to make is everybody's having to retool the way that they are doing things with right. outdoor dining. You know, that's another thing, you know, we in new Orleans love indoor dining. We've always had indoor dining and we have beautiful restaurants like Antoine's and, and places like that. And I know those places because I also pick up the garbage there and, and, they are trying to reprogram their way of doing things. Cause you know, Mardi Gras is one of the biggest times of year for, um, sorry. Did I get connected? I just kind of. Sorry, sorry. But, but Mardi Gras is a, a big time for, for Antoine's and a lot of the restaurants. And so now they're looking at how do we do outdoor dining? How do we figure out how to reprogram to outdoor? door seating and and honestly to tell you the truth Antoine's has got some beautiful balconies I mean we we have we have we have restaurants that have that that have great courtyards and so you know trying to reprogram and 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 work with the changes and and finding the opportunities when they arise and and acting on them so anyway that's kind of my take on it so um yeah I I agree with you on all of the above and quite frankly I'm I'm not originally from here although I think I barely am eligible to be called a New Orleans citizen now because I've been here since 1972. Does that count? That's kind of a lifetime or so. Yeah, it but, does. Uh, we, where I come from, New York City, we have lots of outdoor um, uh, dining. And, and actually in fairly um, not that hospitable locations with a lot of traffic and so on. Whereas here, I always wonder, why don't we have more outdoor? And quite frankly, even before COVID, my husband, my husband and I love to go there's a little outdoor area by the day, Cafe Dega that we like to hang out at Santa Fe that we like to hang out. We'd love to eat outdoors. So I, I agree with you. I think that that kind of pivoting is going to happen. I am still concerned though about, um, I think in the bigger picture, I, I hear this uh, fear and resistance to changes in the uh, energy industry. And um, I, I hear a lot of people here sort of, um, uh, complaining and, and, and angry and not happy about the new administration in Washington uh, addressing climate change. Um, 
And, and I'm thinking, well, um, you know, sooner or later, we all know that there's going to be a, a shift towards more renewable energy and the energy companies themselves are thinking in that direction. So I'm hoping our, our, <clears throat> our leadership in this state will adapt and recognize that there are other ways to grow our economy. And quite frankly, you guys are involved in it. The creative industries, Sydney, film, arts, this is a, an area that's growing worldwide as one of the leading growth industries. And I can't understand why right now um, I'm not hearing out of Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans. I, we're hearing it out of New Orleans because here it's inescapable. But I do hope that more of our leadership in the state will recognize that you do have to pivot in the big way too, in terms of economic development planning, um, just the way you are individually looking at that. I, I don't don't want to get you into politics. I'm sure you don't want <laughs> to, but but I, it's something that I'm very watchful about and concerned about. Any comments? Well, uh, and I think Jean, you're right, and I think it it's education, education, education with the uh, with our leaders. And uh, I, I have faith that uh, democracy works and in the long haul, everything comes out uh, for the best in our system of government. But uh, we gotta get out there. And I know that uh, you have been advocating for a long time on the creative end. And, uh, in, in, and I, I learned having been in the, uh, the film business for the last seven years, how much potential exists there. And uh, but you, we have to get out and we have to make sure that the people in government understand and support it. And the opportunity we have here is because it is such a desirable venue for them to be down here in the state for a, a number of reasons, which we could spend the whole show talking about, is why not seize the opportunity? And as you know, the in the creative industries, there's huge, that, that's where the future is, uh, is in the creative industries, the creative minds. Of people who are doing things, uh, and, and, and those folks who do that, I've learned, uh, not only enjoy working and living here, uh, but uh, it's, 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 they're inspired by being here, and, uh, and they want to be here. And one of the things that, uh, that is an incentive to me to keep going is when I, I hear people say, and we've seen this over the years, that I can now live where I want to live. I don't have to go to Los Angeles or go to New York. And, uh, and by creating that infrastructure around the, the business, and it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, but I have faith that uh, I see it uh, with our legislators in Baton Rouge, they're understanding more the rock and ripple economic effect that uh, the industry has, speaking just about that. But again, uh, as I say, I've always had faith, uh, you're right, we're not going to get into the politics of it, that uh, our system works. And at the end of the day, uh, if you look back, you might sort of like what they say, making sausage in the legislature. It might not be the prettiest thing in the world, but Gene, it always works out. And here in New Orleans, uh, because of the resiliency and all of the other assets we have here, we're in a good place. Closing words, guys. So Sydney, four, pick up where Sydney just left off and, and, um, and just give me your own personal um, take at the moment. Uh, uh, you know, I, maybe I, one way of, of, of doing this to close off is to say, how do you spend your day? You want, the, you want me to talk about that or the, you want me to talk about the uh, renewable energy and, and environment stuff? You... Pick your choice. It's your closing words. <laughs> So my closing word, well, I'll say something really quick about the, that. I think it, it starts with enforcement and government. I mean, I think, you know, you can set policy and you can set the, you know, I know Exxon's pushing really hard to work to figure out ways to, to 
get away from so much dependency on oil. I know that they've been talking about it and putting it out there, especially with the new administration. But just like anything, we recycle in Kenner. And, you know, if you you have to and government has to be partnered with you, like in San, in, in, in San Francisco, they find you there. People go around and they dig in the trash. And if you put things in it that aren't recyclable, they write you a fine. They can attach it to your house. So, you know, setting policy is great, but you have to be able to enforce it and you have to get everybody on the same page. That's my thing on that. Um, closing. How do I do my day? I get up early in the morning. I'm usually up by five, five thirty and I start looking at my uh, reports. I get my reports on what trucks are out, what where we are in you know, as far as progress and, and who showed up, who didn't, who's misbehaving. Um, and I'm kind of I've kind of got the Grammy thing where I'm not sitting in the front seat of the office, but I've got the cameras and I'm looking at all the reporting. And um, and, you know, I ride around, check on my guys and go to the office and I, I go to the office every day because it's a good example to show that I'm, I'm there. I'm present. Uh, I think that's very important. And that's been instilled in me through my father, my mu my grandmother and, and family uh, on work ethic. And I think it's great because just being there and being present is important. Um, and, you know, I find time throughout the day to try to meditate and, and spend time with my daughter every uh, morning and every evening. That's one of the things I like to feed her breakfast before she goes to school. And I like to watch Curious George and read her a book at night before she goes to bed. Um, and, and those things are important because of the fact that it makes a difference. I see our relationship grow by doing that. Um, and so that's good. But that's kind of how I spend my day. And then when I get out of town or I need to check out, I go to the Bahamas where I have a house and I plant coconut. I, I get in the garden and do things like that. And that's my relaxing time. So that's kind of what I that's my life pretty much in a nutshell and looking at deals and talking to people like that. that but that's pretty much it. And Sydney, I know that one of the things that you do for relaxation, because I sometimes check in with you and, and uh, want to intrude on the wrong time of the day when you're doing your kind of workouts. So I know that's one of the uh, things that you do to uh, relax. But how do you, how do you want to characterize your day? Um, early to bed, early to rise. And uh, on a note uh, relating to mom, uh, the early to early to bed has become uh, earlier, let's say, in my later years. And the standing joke is, when my mother calls me, if it's any time uh, after eight o'clock, the first thing she asks me, are you sleeping? And, <laughs> and she still maintains quite a social calendar and she'll get out there. And so she covers the bases still for the late night events. Okay. Um, guys, I, I, you're by model again. Uh, I, you both have become a part of my, especially Sydney the third, of course, because of the art venue have become a part of my life and I appreciate it. And um Everything I've heard you talk about this whole time, I have heard Lena's voice. And so I enjoyed this very much and I appreciate it and look forward to keeping up with you and what you're up to. And, and Sydney, please, uh, Sydney Four, um, uh, let me know what you're up to and that you want uh, any exposure or publicity for it. Um, Sydney Three knows that I do that on a regular basis. So yes, ma'am. Uh, I look forward to um, going forward and, and New Orleans coming out of this. Um, I just got my second shot. So, <laughs> you know, one of the few advantages of being my age uh, and, and hopefully um, uh, all of what they say they're going to do in Washington is going to mean that a lot of other people are going to get their vaccination sooner and uh, we'll come out of this. And Thank Gina. you very, very much for your time and um, um, see, you, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. The nonprofit sector of not only New Orleans, but just about everywhere has been hit as hard, if not harder, than a lot of other sectors in, in our communities. 
uh, but hasn't got as much attention because maybe it's a little bit harder to talk about nonprofit organizations than it is about, I don't know, bars, restaurants, um, uh, festival venues, and so on. Uh, but the um, uh, Greater New Orleans um, Foundation and the University of New Orleans uh, took on uh, the job of trying to get a handle on exactly um, what was happening with the nonprofit sector. And um, Kelly Chavez Green with um, the New Orleans Foundation and Steve Mumford with UNO um, tackled a, a survey uh, in the spring um, to begin to understand. And um, of course, things have been fluid and, and changing. And so they are now looking at trying to see um, uh, a kind of update and see where we are right now for the purposes ultimately of figuring out um, what kind of help uh, do we need to focus on for these organizations so they can do their job? And um, I, I saw, I caught some statistics quickly in one of your blurbs about the extent of, of um, the uh, nonprofit sector. And uh, it's huge uh, in terms of jobs and, and uh, percentage of GNP. Do either one of you have those numbers at hand? I do, yes. So um, based on our our data from last year that we uh, pulled from the IRS, there are over 17,000 nonprofits um, potentially registered in our from our region, but at least we know that 6,800 of them are actively uh, paying taxes with, or you know, filing with the IRS and and um, and actively serving our community. Um, something like 3,500 of those are 501c3 public charities, which most of us commonly think of when we think of nonprofit organizations. And also based on um, some federal data uh, sets, we see that nonprofits employ about 12% of our workforce in Southeast Louisiana. So they're really uh, uh, contributing to our economy in a huge way that often is over, uh, overlooked. Yeah, I think most of the time people think of uh, 501c3s as the recipients of um, or the need having a need always for uh, help financially, but the truth is also they have an impact financially that's very important. And so I'm I'm glad to hear those numbers. Um, maybe that'll help me with my next fund fundraising drive from my nonprofit. Um, so give me just a, a Kelly maybe or a Steve whoever wants to start um, a, a little bit of a, a quick. Um, a brief di uh, description of the results that you got from the first phase and, um, and, and how um, you're now uh, conducting uh, the new survey. And of course you need to have people fill them in. So we're gonna put the push on and encourage people to please do the surveys. It seems like a, a kind of a side thing, but it's, it's not, it's really important. It's core to how we support our, our economy. Yeah, and I guess I'll start, and again, this is Kelly with the Greater New Orleans Foundation, and I actually lead our nonprofit leadership and effectiveness program at the foundation, and our whole goal is to strengthen the nonprofit sector so that we can get maximum mission attainment from all these great organizations that touch us, like you said, in so many variety of ways, and there's frankly not a lot of data on the nonprofit sector, not in our region, not across the country. It is a mystery. And like you said, Jean, like folks don't understand how the nonprofit sector is even touching them every day. So when we went out to do this study, we wanted to do a general study to just get information on the sector 
that can inform how we might support them, both as a foundation, but as individuals in the community. And then when COVID hit, um, we knew we had to pivot. And this was an opportunity to really see how the impact of this pandemic affected our nonprofits. And I'll turn it back over to Steve to share some of the highlights of what we learned um, through, that, through that study. Okay. Yeah, so our initial survey last year, just as the pandemic was hitting our region, um, took place between March and April, and we had wonderful participation. We really appreciated just the, the, the support we got from the nonprofit leaders to do this, uh, this survey, to give us this information so that we could put it all together and, and paint this picture of our sector. In fact, we had over uh, well over 300 survey responses and a really excellent response rate at 43% that now we're hoping to get again um, in the second round. Um, and so um, what, what we found in, in addition to just painting a, a portrait of our sector and how it operates, we also learned um, some concerning statistics that helped guide how the foundation responded and, and how we got tried to get the message out about what our non need uh, to, to survive through this disaster and, and provide the critical services that we need from them. And so we saw that over half of nonprofits at that early stage had already canceled or postponed a major fundraising event and losing an average of a third of their annual revenue. Now we, we imagine that's only increased in the months since. We continue to see rolling cancellations even into later this year. Um, we saw that um, 84% of our nonprofit respondents anticipated cash flow problems and were unsure about their solvency going forward. That's, uh, that's obviously hugely concerning and almost two thirds of them anticipated some sort of a staffing change or staffing reduction. Um, so the, it really was a, a, a scary time for nonprofits. The one bright side of that is um, the Federal CARES Act and specifically the Paycheck Protection Program provided some, some really life-saving loans, forgivable loans to our nonprofit sector. And the Greater New Orleans Foundation helped facilitate that application process because that was really designed for businesses. And even the, uh, the applications were difficult for nonprofits to fill out because it, it, it was not tailored to their structures. And so the foundation served as an intermediary and provided technical assistance to help nonprofits tap into those funds. And that provided a, a, a lifeline, but it was only temporary. And we're, um, the same problems are, are cropping back up almost a year later. Okay, so let's talk about a year later. You're getting ready to do uh, another um, uh, survey. Uh, let's talk about this survey, what you're trying to find out. And uh, then I would love to actually um, weave in a little bit of a better understanding of how you view um, the shift that we're going to experience with a new administration at the federal level and how that's going to affect us. Because that's, of course, a big question mark for everybody. And, and needless to say, they're still debating um, what what they're going to put out there. So um, we don't know the answers, but um, so, okay. So yeah, how, what does the new survey look like? Well, I'll start. And, and again, when we pivoted to the COVID-19 study, we had to reduce the study. It, it was a more robust survey and we knew everybody was, you know, hair on fire trying to just get through the pandemic. So we really truncated it. So this, this next iteration of the survey and study is a deeper dive into the sector. And we're, we really have two study focuses. And one is to really understand 
to what extent has our region's nonprofits exhibited resilience to the pandemic one later, one year later? And, and we're looking at financial health, um, which was a big component of that survey, service adaptions, how did nonprofits pivot? For example, many nonprofits earn revenue through ticket sales and contracts with schools, for example, and have had to make shifts, but also looking at opportunities for collaboration. In our earlier survey, 23%, uh, I believe, of the respondents said they were interested in a strategic partnership or merger. That's a great opportunity to help stabilize the sector. So we'll be able to check back on these um, issues. But also, we're collecting information on the race and gender of our nonprofit leadership, both at the executive staff level and at the board level. And this is something that, again, we just don't have data in our sector on who's even leading our sector. So this is gonna be a wonderful opportunity to collect that data. And we will be able to measure how do financial and service resilient outcomes differ by race and gender of the nonprofit leadership and target population. There's a lot of conversation in our sector and, and frankly across all sectors around racial equity. And this is gonna be a great piece uh, of data and study to continue those conversations. Uh, uh, go ahead, Steve. And I was just gonna add to your second question in terms of the ongoing federal response to this pandemic. I think things are hopeful with the next round of stimulus. I, I believe that they um, extended the Paycheck Protection Program and even those who already received loans can go back for another round. So that's again, uh, life-saving and gets them through this critical period and helps them to, um, to maintain their current staffing levels so that they don't have to lay people off. These are important jobs, of course. Um, but also I think there, there's hope for even more direct intervention around nonprofits. I heard, uh, I've heard talk about uh, really targeting the, the arts and culture sector and, and maybe some sort of a, you know, a stimulus directed at certain industries that are, we know are suffering uh, particularly um, and, during this pandemic. And so the, the hope again is that, that federal resources particularly flow into our region to help with our struggling nonprofits so that they can survive through this and, and uh, strengthen themselves beyond this crisis. Well, I can't resist asking, even though um, I, I'm, I'm gonna come back to your survey and exactly how you're putting that out and how people can respond. And, and um, I, I, I assume that you have determined um, uh, your sample in a way, but maybe there's some other folks who are listening who might like to get in on it. And I'm gonna um, ask you to give some information to where they can contact you and, and see if they fit within your profile and can be included. But I can't, you, did you say targeting arts and culture? Um, as a arts and cultural nonprofit, that is intriguing to me. I haven't heard that I've been making calls to people to try to find out um, at the federal level, whether that's gonna be a part of the sort of um, um, uh, New Deal-ish rollout of economic development help that is being envisioned by the administration. And um, I haven't, I, I don't know who's promoting arts and culture. So um, I can't resist asking, what do you know about that? Well, at this point, it's just uh, it's just advocacy efforts. You know, part of the interest groups that are are lobbying 
um, got the federal government to pay attention to, to their, their specific needs. I'm not it's sure that- Black Americans for the arts and folks like that. Exactly, I'm not sure that anything concrete has come out of it and who knows if it will. I just, but, um, but clearly we, we, we recognize that there are organizations, for example, how Kelly shared, um, lose, losing revenues in terms of ticket sales. I mean, even nonprofit organizations depend on revenues to some extent to, to balance their budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so, so these organizations are particularly hard hit, are particularly important for our region. But it's not just arts and culture. Think of all the human service organizations that not only are hurt, hurting in their budgets, but are are um, trying to meet an increased demand for their services because the need is so great. And so they're kind of hit on both sides that they're doing more with less. And so, um, so really across the board, organizations are having to rise to this occasion. I think, and I think uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think the role that nonprofits can play as a collective in that advocacy role, uh, particularly around sector groups, is, is more important than ever. I mean, always when there's shift in administration, um, there's new priorities, um, new budget line items. And so nonprofits have the opportunity to really. Um, voice their power. Like we said, 12% of the workforce in our region is nonprofits. I mean, that's a big number. Um, and one of the recommendations from our first study, and we'll share a link with you so you can um, share it with your listeners to the study, is uh, for funders like the Greater New Orleans Foundation and others to invest in more advocacy. Um, to support those organizations doing that, that work because it, it does lead to systemic change. Um, and so that's not a place that funders have always been interested in supporting. So that is a shift that I think philanthropy and donors need to make as well. That's really interesting. And I totally agree with the importance of that. Yeah. And, and also ultimately advocacy as well as marketing itself. Uh, marketing is another thing that you don't see a lot of funding for, but for many organizations, that's essential to getting the audience that they need for the earned income that they need and so on. So, um, all right, let's, let's talk about the survey because we're going to run out of time before uh, long. And um, so tell me exactly uh, what the time frame is, how are you putting it out, who's, who are you trying to reach, and, and, and how, do, what do you, how do we encourage people who are listening um, to be involved? Sure, we have a contact list of almost 800 public charities in our region that uh, should have been receiving um, e email emails from myself actually uh, requesting that they complete uh, the, the online survey. And those emails in general are going to executive directors of the nonprofits when we have that information. So please be on the lookout for that. Um, if, you're, if your organization was included within our sample, uh, what they call a sampling frame, then you should be receiving those emails. And we'll also, we also uh, just this week began making phone calls to nonprofit leaders, I have um, student workers at, at UNO who are who are uh, conducting those calls, and just the, the goal here is to get a large enough and a representative sample of nonprofits to complete our survey, so that we can make meaningful statistical conclusions with the data, and particularly Black-led nonprofits, because at, um, as as Kelly said, that's that's just a, a huge focus of this study. But if we don't uh, get enough uh, surveys from nonprofits 
that are led by people of color, then we can't really make meaningful comparisons across uh, different you know, racial demographics of leadership. And so we, we're just, please be on the lookout for that survey link, complete the survey, although it does take a little bit of time and you have to collect some data internally uh, potentially. And if you think that you should have received the survey and haven't, you can reach out to me. Uh, my email address is swmumfor at uno.edu, and I'd be happy to look into it with you. I think you better repeat that. S-W-M-U-M-F-O-R at uno.edu. And, uh, and I will add, you know, even if you're not in that sample of 800, you know, please get connected to the Greater New Orleans Foundation and the work that we do in nonprofit leadership and effectiveness. We do a lot of free webinars and workshops. We just had one this morning on how do you do strategic partnering and restructure and work better together. And so I'll make sure that we can share um, how to get connected. And this study is a tool for you. You can use this study to benchmark yourself and start conversations in your own organization about the data. So I didn't want anybody to feel left out if you weren't in that sample. This is still a, a, a resource sample for you. Sample. Sample yeah. is just that, it's just a sample. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I do encourage people to get in, in touch with you. Kelly, what's your uh, information? Uh, my email at the, is Kelly, K-E-L-L-I-E, at G-N-O-F.org. Greater um, I, you know, we all get these surveys. And quite frankly, uh, my organization is putting one out right now because we're doing a strategic plan for the creative industry sector. And I, every time I talk to somebody, I hear about another one. So I know everybody is bes um, uh, besieged with them, but they really are important. And I think the point that you made about getting the whole sample. So we, I think we tend to think of it, oh, it's just me, but no, it's you as a part of this whole context of organizations without which you cannot draw conclusions. So I, I, I wanna join you in urging folks to uh, do your survey and I'll be putting out my own and begging people uh, for ours as well. But um, listen, thank you guys very much for what you're doing. I think it's really important. I'm, I'm really anxious to see the results and also I'm anxious to learn more about our nonprofits because I have to be honest and say that almost every week I hear about one that I never heard of before. In fact, I heard about one in the newspaper the other day that just got a $4 million grant. And I said, $4 million and I never heard of them? Well, that's that's something. Somebody's doing a good job there on the development side. But um, yeah, I know there's lots of organizations that were overlapping. And I think that's an important issue. Maybe you've gotten to that with your survey, how we can do a better job of not overlapping, but actually just uh, collaborating and cooperating. Steve Mumford out of UNO. And by the way, if people can't remember that whole thing, if I'm sure if they put in Steve Mumford UNO, they'll find you. Likewise, yes. Kelly Chavez Green, very interesting combination there um, at uh, GNOF. And um, good luck with it. And uh, stay in touch with us and let us put out um, in our newsletter some reminders to folks to, um, to, to get the job done. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you for having us. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.